Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest. I am delighted to be welcoming back for the third time Dr. Bill Thomas, also known as the geriatrician on a mission. He is the founder of changingaging.org the author of multiple books, and he is a longtime innovator in all kinds of things aging. He first came to national attention in the 90s for his groundbreaking work on improving nursing home care and creating culture change in long-term care through the Eden Alternative and the Greenhouse Project. And over the past several years, Dr. Thomas has just really expanded the scope of what he works on and has worked on several really interesting projects related to aging. He's written books, he's developed performances to challenge the conventional narratives around aging and to spearhead a national conversation about changing our stories to help counter ageism. He's also been doing some very interesting work on how we can help people thrive as they age and also on the role of housing and community. So we had him here on the podcast two years ago for episode 55 and then a year ago for episode 82. And last time he said he'd be back in a year to talk about how the projects related to housing and thriving while aging had evolved, including the work pioneering an affordable, universally designed small house called Minka, and his projects around a concept called MAGIC, which stands for Multi-Ability, Multi-Generational Inclusive Communities. So I'm just so delighted that he was able to come back today. And actually, this is going to be episode 100, and I just can't think of a better guest to have for episode 100. So I'm thrilled to have him to talk about how these projects have evolved and to continue the conversation on better housing models, better communities, and how we can help people thrive as they get older. So Bill, welcome back. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be back for my hat trick third performance on the podcast. And I realized as you were speaking, I've been on 3% of all the shows you've done. So that's kind of exciting. Yes, very, very exciting. So I started our conversation a year ago with this question, and I'd love for us to start with this again, which is to have you tell us in your own words what you are working on, because you, the scope of what you do is so varied that sometimes I find it a little challenging to summarize, and i just love to hear the way you summarize it and your key themes. Well, you know, I think at the highest level, I would really summarize actually all of my work throughout my career, it can be boiled down to really two words, changing aging. You know, we, we have this strange paradox going in 21st century America. We've built a society that has done an extraordinary job of getting people into old age. We do it really almost better than any society in history. And at the same time, we live in a society that really stigmatizes and penalizes older people, often exclusively uh, for being older. So it's kind of a weird thing. Aging is succeeding 
like never before on a biological basis or a demographic basis, but on a cultural basis, we're really out of sync and out of position. And um, so a lot of my work is designed to, you know, highlight or address the stigma and prejudice and bigotry that surrounds aging and offer different ways of doing things, different ways of talking about things, different ways of experiencing things so that aging can change. We change aging by changing the way we age. And that's, that's kind of what I'm up to. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, in listening to you, I'm remembering how I was telling a group of people who were relatively younger, they were actually my recreational ultimate Frisbee team for the city Uh a few weeks ago about my work and about you and your work countering ageism. And these are people who are aged, you know, 20s through 40s. And so they all, first of all, seemed initially a little surprised to hear of ageism. So I think it's not even on their radar. But then one of them asked me a question that I thought was interesting and that I want to pass on to you now that I think of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, he said, well, are there any societies right now that you think are treating their aging people as they should? And I didn't really have a good answer. And so I would love to ask you that right now. Great question. Super complicated answer. Buckle up for safety. Okay. So here's the first thing. Ageism. To really understand ageism, you have to understand the four types of ageism. So there's ageism that's directed at older people and ageism that's directed at younger people. So for example, among your Frisbee mates, if I were to walk out there and say, well, they're all pretty good at uploading videos to YouTube because they're young, that's ageism, okay? Because mm. who I don't know, maybe they're good at it, maybe they're not, I have no idea. But mm-hmm. making a judgment about a group of people because of their age, that's ageism. Okay? So when we say things about millennials, that is also ageism. That's ageist, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's horribly ageist. So, um, so then there's ageism that stereotypes positive traits and ageism that stereotypes negative traits. So I just gave you with the YouTube thing, I just gave you an example of what would people would think of positive ageism directed at young people. So ageism is ageism, but I'm saying these young people have these desirable traits because they're young. Mm-hmm. That's ageism. It's directed at young people. And in this case, it's stereotyping positive traits. But if I see a group of older people sitting on a park bench or, you know, and I say, well, those, those geezers must, well, not geezers, I'll get back to that. Those old people must be wise because they got to be wise because they're old. Mm-hmm. That's positive ageism directed at older people. And when we started talking, we were talking about negative ageism directed at older people. That's a very significant problem. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm against all kinds of ageism. Mm. And here, I mean, if you just take the conversation and flip it over to race, gender, sexual orientation, I'm, I'm going to say things, you know, that are corollaries. If I say that a, a gay man must be good at interior decorating, that's a, that's not a compliment, okay? That's, that's a 
you know, a, a, a strange prejudiced comment because I don't know anything about that person's abilities based on their sexual orientation. That's only one point of information. If I say, oh, that woman's probably bad at math, okay? That's not right. So in our consideration of ageism, we want to address ageism of all types directed against all ages and judge people by their own attributes and not by a, a single feature, whether it's sexual orientation, race, gender, age, all of that's garbage. Okay. And uh, that's where I, that's where my head's at on that. Okay. And then in terms of, so, so there is all kinds of ageism. And then there's also, you know, an issue that I think you spoke into, which is that we often treat older adults in our society as less valuable. In many ways, we signal yeah. that it's less valuable to be mm -hmm. an older adult. And you've spoken in the past that there is this predominant narrative of aging as equivalent to decline and being less useful or less valuable, which is pernicious. Well, what I was, pernicious, but yeah, no, you go ahead, Liz. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to ask is, you know, to come back to my friend's question is, you know, can you think of some places where older people are not treated this way? Ah, <laughs> where you think there isn't oh, yeah. a predominant narrative of you're declining or you're less useful? You got you, you fantastic. So here's, here's the, the thing that's difficult about this. In terms of aging, and I'm simplifying, but in terms of aging as a human phenomenon, one way to consider the different experiences of aging, aging around the world is to sort of consider what you might call traditional societies and you know industrialized societies separately, okay? So here's the thing. In many traditional societies, older people are, in many ways, treated very well. However, that, that good treatment comes at a very high cost in terms of a very tightly circumscribed role in society and with very, very, very limited options for coloring outside the lines. And, um, you know, uh, in the most traditional societies, there's almost no ability to vary from the prescribed role. So here, and here's where, here's where we get that duality I was talking about at the beginning. So in an industrialized society, we release a lot of traditional expectations about how older people should dress or what they should do or what they're permitted to say or what, where they're permitted to go. You know, we, we don't do a lot of that. However, also uh, out with the baby, out with the bathwater is a lot of the appreciation and understanding of aging as a unique phase is lost because we don't have a, a role that older people are supposed to play. And this is where it gets messy, is that therefore the standard for measuring older people becomes younger people. In other words, you're not, you're not evaluating an elder in in the context of a socially prescribed traditional role, lots of times we evaluate older people based on their, how much they resemble young people. And you can see this in the way in American English we use the word still. So we talk about desirable, attractive, successful older people 
in terms of what they still do. And that's how we compliment older people often, you know, well, you know, Jack's uh, 84 and he still drives, you know. He still that's, plays tennis. Yes. And hey, nothing wrong with driving or playing tennis, but if you just scrape the paint off that, you realize that the standard of measurement for that person is what a young person would do. And you, you realize that is, if that's gonna be the standard, by the time you're 87, 92, 94, 96, there's going to come a time when you're going to fail that standard. So in, instead of being judged on, on the basis of who you are right now and what your capabilities are right now, you're judged according to the standard set by younger people. Now, back to your friend's question. A lot of many, many older people living in traditional societies have the really strong social capital and a lot of positive feels from their loved ones around them can be really good. However, they have very little freedom to vary their performance or their, their life from that prescribed rule. So uh, very few people in America would swap out their old age for that old age. Now, what about industrial societies? Here, in my opinion, the, the leaders in the world are the um, Scandinavians. I think the Scandinavians do do it better than anyone. And the main reason is they fold aging and support for aging. They largely fold it into everyday life. They don't stigmatize and isolate older people to the degree we do, certainly in the United States and in most of Europe. So what does that look like, it being folded into everyday life? Yeah, an example. I, I was in, not long ago, I was in Stockholm and uh, got to tour uh, north of the city, some interesting buildings and so on. And just by chance, I was in an apartment building that had adult day services in the building right next to the childcare, next to the gym, that was part of the building. And so extended family members were able to have older relatives spend their day when younger family members were at work, could spend their day at the adult day services with kids in, a, you know, around the gym. And that's just designed into the architecture of the building. I mean, right. they built it that way. So it's multi-generational and multi-ability. Yeah. Sounds like something you've been working on promoting. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like magic. Magic. So this is the thing. This is the thing. So back to our friend, uh, the Frisbee player. Really, all my experience tells me the best way to treat, quote, older people is to treat them as people. That's your best bet. And what that means is um, we have, we have a, a now over half century of experience with some pretty significant age segregation in America. And it's about time to move past that and create communities that are multi-ability and multi-generational and inclusive and realize that that's the most vibrant type of community you're going to get. A lot of the stigma of aging is actually in American society is a consequence of our habit of isolating and segregating older people. 
And then, of course, we make it worse by further segregating older people living with some kind of cognitive change or physical disability. And uh, that sends a really loud message to society. So in some ways, I think we're finally ready to start normalizing uh, living with dementia, normalize frailty, normalize old age, so that they're just part of the social fabric and not separate from the social fabric. Yeah. Well, I would love to use that to talk more about, you know, again, you know, communities and houses, because I remember what you said last year is that you really feel like houses are engines of independence. And also when housing is not kind of adaptable and universally designed, it can result in this segregation because it can't support people of all abilities. So, so a few years ago, you developed the special house Minka. And then you were working on using Minkas as part of building new multi-generational communities. So I would love for you to update yeah. us on uh, what's been going on with the, the Minkas and those communities you were working on. Great. So, so I'll just start with uh, a fact I discovered in the last year. Um, Harvard University, uh, their Joint Center on Housing Studies, issued a report on oh, aging yeah. and housing. Wow. That, I, that uh-huh. report is, mm, you've seen it, I'm sure. I have seen it, and it's on my list to get somebody oh. to come on the podcast and talk about it. But oh, you should. You, yeah, if you could yeah, I'll give you the, briefly. I'll give you the top line, but you should top have line for the audience. Uh-huh. So, so basically, we have a tremendous stock of single-family housing, only 2% of which meets accessibility standards. So think about that for a minute. 98% of the houses in America are ill-suited to somebody living with limitations in mobility or limitations in cognitive ability. 98% of the housing doesn't suit them. And so we have this mismatch between the housing we have and the housing we need. It's a tremendous gap. And that gap is has consequences. And I was explaining this to a a group of medical students recently, and I I think I wasn't really getting through to them. So I I made this little metaphor. Uh, We're having a conversation about uh, incontinence, in particular, functional incontinence. And what that means is people who actually can control their bowel and bladder, but have trouble getting to the toilet in time because of issues related to mobility, mainly. So I said to them, okay, let's just, you're nice medical students, very nice. I'm going to make a house where you have to jump over a six foot bar to get to the bathroom. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. So do, 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 here you are, very nice, doing your thing. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. And you walk up and you realize you have to high jump a six foot bar to get to the bathroom. And if you can't do it, you can't get to the bathroom. And so all of a sudden, nothing changed in you. You're the same. But now the house you're living in has made you incontinent. And you, I know in your work, you know, you've seen this countless times where an older person with limited mobility moves into a building that's 3 million square feet, you know, and, and has to walk 100 yards to get to breakfast. And so they start using a wheelchair because they can't walk a hundred yards, not because they can't walk. So the idea is what if you 
created a house that actually made it really easy to live. That's a crazy idea, I know. But uh, so since I talked to you last, we, we sort of formulated a couple of ways of talking about this. And, and the first thing is people are living in houses and they love houses that don't love them. So, and man, have you had a million conversations like this where the person is telling you, I love my house. Yeah, well, guess what? Your house is going to freaking kill you, okay? Your house does not love you. So Minka, with Minka, what we're trying to do is actually make houses that people love and houses that love people. That's the first thing. Second thing, and this has been a big discovery for us, and I want it for, I know you have a lot of people listening to this, so I'll just say uh, we boiled this down to really two sentences. Big house, small life. Small house, big life. And that operates on a couple of levels because if you have the big house, you have all of the money and time and energy and effort it goes into maintaining it. And most of the big houses are also socially isolating. So lots of people who want to quote age in place and have uh, the big house actually wind up living a very small life. Uh, in contrast, small house, big life. Less energy goes into the house. The house is closer to everything, closer to other people, better social connection, big life. And that's really the essence of what we're doing with Minka. We just think that the American housing market needs a, a twist with smaller houses designed for independence easy to live in, easy to maintain, cost less money, more money to live the life you want to live. And this is the super important thing. A house that simplifies independence has real value to older people. And that's what we're after. Right. And so I think a year ago, you know, one of the issues was that you, you had created the Minka and there were a few of them available. So we do have a lot of older people who are, feel quite devoted to their large house that doesn't love them back. But then there's, I think, a growing group of uh, older adults, uh, sometimes younger ones, well, younger, older, uh, you know, people in their, in their 60s or 70s, uh, sometimes older, even older than that, who are interested in finding this suitable house, but are having trouble finding something. So have Minkas become more available since well, a year ago? Yeah, they have, but not anywhere near available enough and i just want to say two things about this uh first off i don't know if you know but i turned 60 last month you know i was so, wondering because i realized one of our talks we said you were 58 and so i thought that's right i've been aging man congratulations <laughs> thank you so i i just wanted to say uh i'm really uh, excited to start a new decade and see what it's like and this is getting back to what you were talking about. Uh, my wife and I moved into a 720 square foot house. Really? Yep. Because where so, were you living? You were living on a, in a rural area on a farm before? Well, that was, yep, before. And now we're living in a small, it's not tiny. Compared to tiny houses, it's huge. It's not a, is it a Minka? No, it's not a Minka, but we have a Minka next door. And our daughter, Haley. Uh -huh. who lives with uh, disabilities, right. uh, 
Haley lives next door in a 320 square foot house. And so where is your 700 square foot house? Because as we next, have noted, community and neighborhood is important. Yeah. What's around so you? We, uh, what's around me, interestingly, um, we live on uh, a kind of a back street where the, this is very interesting, where the speed limit is five miles an hour. And it has a tremendous impact on our social life because to get to the house, Haley's house and our house, the Minka and our house, you have to drive five miles an hour. And you, I virtually never get to my house without stopping to talk to people on the way because I'm going at just a tinge faster than walking speed. So it's easy for people to approach the car and say, hey, what's going on? What you doing? So actually, we live in a much more social environment, ironically, uh, than we did before. And then I want to say about the second thing you were mentioning about getting minkas. And um, I'll just say for people who like to read about this stuff, if you go to myminka, M-Y-M-I-N-K-A dot com, you can read about minkas. So I won't, I won't go into the details of it here, except, and this is what's cool. We think small houses like this shouldn't be, they, they shouldn't be projects. They ought to be products. You ought to be able to buy a minka and live in it like as if it's a product you order then rather than it's a building you built. So we, we, have, a, we have this little group of um, robotic manufacturing machines, little robots who are quite friendly and nice. And uh, the robots help us make the pieces that go together like Legos to make the house. So here's the plan. The plan is to enable communities to have the printers so communities can print the houses they need as they need them. That's the thing that's different. We, we in essence, don't want to sell houses so much. We want to provide people with printers. With an easy start a community kit. Start yes. a community with houses that are engines of independence kit. Yeah, because you know what? Anybody... I would say over the age of 40, and I'm going to say, I'm guessing 40, anyone over the age of 40 has had dinner with friends and said, you know what we really ought to do? We ought to get some, a place together. We ought to, right. you know, we ought to share something here. Create a compound. <laughs> yes. How, how, have you, I know, but no one ever does it. And the reason they don't do it is it's too hard. So we want to like, we talk a lot about, and again, I'm older than you, so you may not remember this, but there was a time when if you wanted something printed, you had to go to the print shop and there was a printer behind the desk and you'd say, hey, I want to make a hundred copies of this or whatever. And then they'd tell you to come back next Tuesday. And now somewhere, I'm guessing in your house, you have a machine that you know, print and print, you know, copy oh, yeah. from stuff. It yeah. prints double-sided and is wireless. <laughs> it's great. Wow. Yeah. So that's what we want is double-sided wireless Minka printers. Community yeah. printers. Yeah. Community printers. Because And you're making a good point there. The houses are built to be part of a community. That's the other thing. A lot of housing in America is 
built on the castle model where they almost literally have a moat. Well, they do have a drawbridge that the garage doors are the modern like drawbridge or portcullis, you know, like the castle has. And, you know, you ride into your castle and then the drawbridge comes up and, you know, well, yeah, minkas aren't like that. They're, they're made, they're made to be enable people to live in dense clustered neighborhoods called pocket neighborhoods. So right. that's, so, that's what we're doing. Go ahead. If you don't mind, I'm kind of curious about your move. So did, did you move to a pocket neighborhood? You may not t- want to tell our audience exactly where you're living, but I'm just sort of wondering, are you in an urban area? Are you in a rural area with a cluster? Like how did you choose the spot? I, I, won't, I won't say details, but I can say that I'm in a rural area in a cluster, in a cluster. And our house, eh, it's a little small, eh, it's about average size in the cluster that I'm in. So there's a few houses that are bigger. There's a few houses that are smaller. Haley's is the smallest at 320 square feet, but it's a small cluster of houses in a rural area. And uh, the key, I have to tell you the key is uh, bringing the automobile removing the automobile from the center of life is really important. Well, that's part of what I was wondering, because also, you know, often like walkable neighborhoods have the advantage Mm -hmm. of, first of all, people socialize as they walk, but also that if you are no longer able to drive, you know, you still have options for getting your needs met, you know, getting groceries and things like that, and and also socializing. So I was kind of curious about that pretty rural area. Right. So there's... We're still driving, but um, what's kind of fun is as people go in and out, they always are calling to other people saying, I'm going to the store. Can I get you something? And so it's uh, it's not communal in any formal sense. It's community in the informal sense, you know, that if you like your neighbors and they're close by and you can communicate your needs to them and they can communicate their needs to you you tend to have a higher level of reciprocity than if you don't like your neighbors and they aren't close by and you can't communicate easily with them, you tend to have lower reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then also while we're talking about, you know, driving, especially in areas where people are more spread out like that here in where I live in San Francisco, we have a lot of self-driving cars. <laughs> on the road are, are you, are, really? they all have they all have technicians and yes we have a ton of them because they're i think they're all using san francisco as their testing ground oh my gosh and i was just wondering if you envision that as being part of also the you know solution all right yeah no i have to admit i mean you're living in it i'm only reading about it but i'm not a believer in autonomous vehicles as a solution and i'll i'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you why and maybe I'll, maybe it'll just will change, but parking lots, that's why. Because parking lots are incredibly hard for that kind of technology to manage. I, I do get it, you know, going down the highway, like an interstate or something, I think you can do a lot with that. But how do you, you know, in a parking lot where you like see the mother with the kids and you give her a little nod or a flick of your finger and she crosses in front of you. And then uh, and there's just so much social signaling in a parking lot, a, a busy parking lot. I just don't see autonomous vehicles doing it. And if they can't handle parking 
thoughts really what good are they you know well that's true i mean you know i'll have to look into it uh, i guess you know in my mind one solution would be um just like now they have special curbs for all the ride-sharing vehicles because we have lots of those in san francisco too <laughs> you know that they might have special curbs for the autonomous vehicles to drop people off and pick them up right and you, you don't uh, have them go in, you don't have them go there you the go parking lots. yeah i'm i'm right? excited i i'm uh i'm a autonomous vehicle skeptic but i do love new technology and um uh, so I'm going to have to just keep following this. Yeah, uh, yeah. What do you think? Do you think it's going to be helpful? Well, I don't know, but I know, I mean, I feel like that's, you know, ends up being a, a limitation and a hurdle for so many older adults who are lucky so enough agree. to live a long time totally. is that totally. the driving becomes yeah. an issue. And uh, especially when people are developing cognitive impairment they have to stop driving at some point and it can keep mm -hmm. them from socializing or participating in activities that they wanted to. And, you know, so how do we resolve that? And, you know, now there's go, go grandparents and things like that. But right. I have found myself wondering if that's going to be something that helps people maintain some of their connections and involvement, you know, so that they can live in the way they want to live, which is, I think was a goal that you mentioned last, last year. I think we could maybe have a win right off if the technicians in the autonomous driving vehicles are really friendly oh there you go <laughs> well, well i don't know that they're gonna stay i mean i think the goal is to eventually have them out because otherwise they're not that much different than uber drivers but you know we need, we need uber drivers to be friendly too or lyft yeah yeah right so, okay well so to come back to minkas and the communities so last time we talked about like two communities that changing aging was working on a, a magic community at the University of Southern Indiana, and then also that special village of hope in Clearfield County in Pennsylvania. Let me tell you a story. I, I just returned uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where we had a day long kind of celebration of Village of Hope. We met with people from health systems and insurers, political figures. We spent all day meeting with people about Village of Hope. And in the evening, we did something that's very aligned with what I think is appropriate to advocacy. Uh, we in, had a musician join us. His name's Jay Allen, country music uh, personality or star, I guess you'd call him. And uh, we did a town hall with music and exploration of how the Village of Hope can bring a new solution to rural communities. Because, um, you know, rural, it's bad, the age segregation is bad enough in urban environments, but in rural communities, it's, it's, it's completely destructive of existing kinship networks and friends and families. So, so the Village of Hope what we were talking about last night in, in Pittsburgh is going to be home to grandparents raising grandchildren, home to uh, parents with adult children living with disabilities, home to families and couples where one member is living with dementia. So in other words, home to people of different ages and different abilities. And, and here's the kicker. Um, and, I, and I think you've been suggesting this all along in your comments. You need the social connections. You need the social capital. You need the relationships. 
that you know just professional services all by themselves are not adequate to meet needs. And if you if you cultivate social capital the way you cultivate a garden, people can be enriched, and you actually actually can wind up spending less money people can have a better life. And that's what Village of Hope is really all about. So in the past year, we completed the master plan. We've got things ready to go. Uh, we're raising the first allotment of capital that'll get us in the, get starting construction in 2020. And we're hoping the first people move in in the fall of 2020. So uh, as these things go, uh, the Village of Hope is going really fast. And I think that's mainly because the community is really behind it and uh, really excited about having an alternative to institutionalization. Right, right. Well, that's wonderful. Well, uh, great. That'll be exciting to, to see that keep coming. Well, so now I wanted to ask you about another project that your colleague, Kaven, told me that you had been involved in, which is that this over the past year, you became the medical director of LifeSpark Health. And yeah, I'm really interested in value-based home health. Um, oh, yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. And, and also, I read uh, an article in which you were interviewed, and uh, you said that Medicare Advantage, to my surprise, is turning out to be among the most powerful tools for change in the whole field of healthcare and for older people. Yeah. yeah. I did not expect that. Yeah. And well said. I'd love to get your view on it, but... Sure. Then uh, there's plenty of time for things to go wrong, but right now I think a lot of things are going right. So here's here's the big idea. You know, you and I trained in a field that was based on fee for service, and and if you spoke the kind of hospital administrator slang, they would call it heads and beds. You know, the more volume you have, the more money you make. The more operations you do, the more money you make. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so, actually, I have to say that's not a bad system for a healthy population with acute episodic acute illness and injury. Works pretty well, I think. I I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Big problem. We don't. Have, we're not living in that society. We're living in a society where increasingly older people and people living with multiple comorbidities actually now account for the majority of healthcare delivered in the country. And fee-for-service is terrible in that context because it discourages collaboration, it encourages over-medication, over-hospitalization, over-intervention um, uh, among people who actually have limited reserve capacity and could really benefit from a much more thoughtful approach to care. So at this point, Medicare Advantage has really set up a, especially in uh, full risk, what's called full risk arrangements, they've really set up a, a, an incentive for people to really think about what care is necessary to get the best outcomes, which is actually what you want. Well, when you say people, you mean the, the providers, not the patients. Yes. And to remind right. our audience, and we recently covered this on ah, podcast, we did Medicare open enrollment two episodes again. So I guess that's going to be episode 98. But Medicare, uh, Medicare, traditional Medicare is fee for service. Right. 
they pay, you know, providers a certain amount. And then Medicare Advantage are also known sometimes as Medicare HMOs, mm-hmm. get a sort of more comprehensive package. And the, the Medicare Advantage company gets paid a, a sort of flat fee, I guess, to take care of a, a fee per member per month or something. Uh, yeah, but I think there's something even better, or not better, another step, which I think is necessary. And this is where I'm going to get a little radical, but um, there's uh, an arrangement where instead of being paid per member per month, um, a certain group of people become, and, you know, Kaiser Permanente's had many decades ahead on this, but where that block of money is devoted to those people and then the patients and the people helping to manage the care choose how the resources are allocated this is what's really important because so and you know as a geriatrician so many really vital needs do not fit on a prescription pad you know there's so many things you can do as a geriatrician to make somebody's life so much better but if it's not being sold by a pharmaceutical company you can't prescribe it and it doesn't get paid for in the system. So that's where we really need to go. Is a, um, and this is very common for among systems in Europe with older people is a global budget. And how do we allocate the resources to get the best outcomes in a global budget rather than how do I hold on to, for example, most of my per member per month uh, funding? So the reason I'll tell you why I'm excited about it. The reason I'm excited about it is we actually have an opportunity. People like you and me have an opportunity to be part of building an alternative delivery system that actually is built from the ground up for the benefit and for the benefit of older people. See the, the existing delivery system wasn't built with older people in mind it was built with young people in mind. And you, you know this because you walk into a hospital that you know, they have new wings and additions, but the concept was developed with the idea of a very young, healthy population that only needed episodic intervention. And the hospitals, I don't have to tell you, are extremely dangerous places, essentials many times, but very dangerous places for older people. And we need a system, a delivery system that keeps people out of the hospital unless they can truly benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's so what be I'm able excited. to provide more care outside the hospital. And um, yeah. for this organization where you've become medical director, LifeSpark, mm-hmm. they yeah. do home health. Is that what they do? Yeah. So here's what they they built in. They're, they're based in Minneapolis. They built a really flourishing can. Now we'll say conventional, but private pay home care company, yay, and they take care of a lot of people. But then they they're using the infrastructure they built up to expand into primary care and Medicare cost savings plans, where they can reach out with the skills they've built to help people stay where they want to stay at home longer, less, fewer hospitalizations. In fact, in their population, the uh, readmission rate is 7%, 
um, which is, as you know, a good number. And I'm working with them to develop systems where people get good care with only the contacts with the existing system that will really benefit them mm-hmm. and no more. Okay. So, so I they were kind a of call home... it Goldilocks. Yeah. Home so care they... company. Home health care, though. Home health. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So they were providing, so just to, you know, cause I know people often have a little bit of confusion about this, but home health care are, you know, providers of skilled quote unquote medical services, Yes. nursing, wound care, uh, physical therapy, OT, because sometimes they get confused with home care, which is, you know, getting somebody to come. Right. Home to yeah. Home and they do, they do both. Yeah, they, they do, do both. both. But they, it sounds like they were, they had a good business doing home health care and they're expanding that now to do some primary care and just more healthcare in the home, exactly. which is actually something that, of course, we're huge fans of in geriatrics, bringing the healthcare to people where they are, because you can do so much uh, yeah, you when can. you're able to do that. And often the issue has been having the infrastructure and also making mm. it financially viable. So it sounds like you're, they have a really promising lead on how they're doing this. Really promising lead. And the reason I'm going to say it is, and the, the reason is that they're person-centered, they're a person-centered company. And our, we, you and I have good friends who work in the acute care industry. I mean, they're good people. And man, if you really need them, I'm so glad they're there, you know, because they can do miracles. I do love that. But most of the time, most people, especially most older people, don't need technological wizardry they need solutions to really foundational uh, challenges that can change their life. And that's what we need is a healthcare system that is willing to pay for that kind of stuff and also is able to deliver that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll give you one example. And you, you and I have both been part of, you know, special units in hospitals for older people. It's a very, very good idea. And I think there's a lot of good data that they do good things. So, but the thing that's better than that is not going to the hospital. Right. <laughs> I mean, yes. Right. The ACE unit. Yes. I want you to be great. And I'm, I'm, the data is piling up at how much, if you resource it properly, how much really great healthcare can be delivered at home. So I was starting to say, I, I um, have an op-ed coming out next month uh, called Home is the Best Medicine. And uh, the, the interesting thing is part of my research for it, I was reading up on Florence Nightingale, as you tend to do. And you might be familiar with a quote uh, one of her quotes that uh, the hospital, she considered the hospital to be a transitional invention and that ultimately uh, every person should be able to be able to receive care at home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it's a wonderful concept and I'm so excited to hear you sharing this because I have so many people ask me, how can I get somebody to come to the home? Yeah. And, you know, the challenge is that there are uh, not very many providers um, well, doing it. So, so and because often I'm, the economics don't uh, well, quite yeah, work uh, out well, unless maybe. you're doing a special um, acute illness management program where the insurer has decided to put extra money towards people who might become high utilizers or who. 
I know. They think are high so, utilizers. I, but that's the thing. That's the thing is that that's where I'm saying fee for service, which is posited on you and I being in the office, going right down the hallway, the, you know, having three patients in the room at the same time. And you know what I mean? Well, you try to do that with home care visits, impossible. However, if you have, you know, a, a couple of thousand patients who you can take care of however you need to, and you'll get paid not for the visit, but for the outcomes, that's a better system. Right. And that often also facilitates, you know, teamwork in a way that's more effective mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, exciting. Well, I look forward to seeing what that happens. Well, in the last few minutes that we have, I wanted to just bring up briefly the upcoming election. So not to sure. drag politics into it, but you know, this is mm -hmm. a time when there's a lot of debate and conversation about the key issues facing the country, right? Mm -hmm. And where they're listening to the people who are presenting themselves uh, potentially for the election. And mm -hmm. so I was just wondering if any of the candidates have spoken about aging issues in a way that you are, are interested in or what you think maybe, you know, is this an opportunity for us as a society to bring this up and say this is a priority for us? I, you know, it's interesting. I... It's kind of weird. There's been a, a, a kind of a proxy conversation about aging that's been going on around Medicare and expanding Medicare. I thought you were going to talk about the aging of the candidates because that has come up. Oh. Too. <laughs> <All right. laughs> that is also very interesting. Uh, uh, so there's been a lot of talk about Medicare, expanding Medicare, how to expand Medicare, what that'll be. But it's interesting. I have I follow it fairly closely, and I haven't seen a candidate really address aging per se, you know, like aging itself, aging and the demography and the re reality of an older population. I haven't seen that. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't either. Government programs. Kind of odd when you think about, um, if you take the flip end of this back in the... Um, uh, 60s when the boomer generation um, was really quite young, there was intense focus on what the demography of youth was doing to society and it was a very political question, very deep involvement. It's kind of odd that uh, you have now in, a, in some ways a demographic mirror of that, but you just don't hear it spoken of as a vital concern. And the reason I, I put it down to, again, how we started the podcast, ageism, that it's, it's one thing to get really deeply concerned about the impact of youth on society. And it's sort of an unstated assumption that old people just don't have an impact on American culture, aside from entitlement programs. And that, that's, that's not nice. That's not a nice thing. Uh, right. to say right. so well i've also just been thinking i mean there are so many you know issues that i would think would be pressing for voters you know you mentioned before housing right we don't have very much housing available that's accessible and you know really suited to supporting older adults and living their best life as they get older we have a lot of people who are family caregivers supporting an older relative yeah sure and we don't seem to have tons of programs 
or support for that. We don't, you know, we don't have much, I think, push for more healthcare at home. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I keep kind of wondering, when is it going to be an issue that the candidates are talking about? Yeah, I'm, I, maybe, maybe when we get through the primaries, I don't know, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll see who, uh, who pops up, but it, it is a kind of a strange silence given the tremendous impact that aging is having on society that it would be absent right. from political debate. Yeah. So given we started with you repeating that, you know, your key driver is changing aging for our listeners who want to join in this campaign to change aging, what would you recommend they do in terms of either advocacy or things, you know, that they can do personally? Okay. Main thing you can do personally is confront to the best of your ability, your own internal ageist narratives. And I, I recommend as a starter, a starter exercise, the bathroom mirror in the morning, uh, look at your face and admire it and appreciate it and value it because you woke up with exactly the face you were supposed to have. It's right for you. It's right for this age. It's right for this time in your life. There's nothing wrong with it. And you should be, you should feel kinship with your own aging body because it's been a good friend uh, for a long time. And I think a lot of people um, wander into ageism first thing in the morning, kind of having negative feelings about their body or their face related to aging. And if you could just start exercising the other muscle, which is appreciating your face and your body for what it is today, that's a great way to kind of wake up your ageism fighter for the day, uh, for a day of fighting ageism. Second thing I'll say very quickly is um, not giving tacit approval to ageist jokes. Just like most, most people, most people do not give a tacit approval to sexist jokes or racist jokes when people make ageist jokes it needs to be pointed out to them that that's really not appropriate okay and then if can they sign up with you at changing aging to hear Uh, about where they can take action or yeah we we that's right so changingaging.org is a fun place where we write about stuff like this and it's an open community uh, we're really welcoming. We just love different points of view, different ideas, different perspectives. And uh, yeah, because on. community is important. That's right. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Okay. Well, Bill, uh, well, this has been wonderful. Episode 100. And episode 100. Thank you. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Wonderful. So, thank you for, again, for all this amazing work that you have done recently and over the years in just blazing a trail for us all. And uh, I'm excited to see what's gonna come next for you in 2020. All right, hey, let's talk again. I'd love to talk again before the end of 2020. Got lots of news for you, okay? Yeah, yeah, we'll do it again in a year. Okay, thank you so much, Bill. All right, bye-bye. And with that, I'm gonna wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. 
Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.